Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. I'm going to start today by reading a story in Mark 10. Uh, It's probably one of the saddest stories in the Gospels. Aren't you glad you tuned in today? (laughs) Uh, This is what Mark says in chapter 10, starting at verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You you shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But now with God, all things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, there are several things we need to notice about the beginning of this interaction. Uh, Mark begins by telling us this young man comes, not walking, but running up to Jesus. Uh, Now, if someone comes running up to you, Why would they do that? Uh, Usually it means they're in a hurry. It indicates you feel some urgency about seeing uh, that person. And in general, important people, powerful people, wealthy people don't run. I mean, this is true in our day. Presidents and CEOs don't go running up to people. People run up to them. Uh, This was especially true in Jesus' day. Uh, This man was wealthy and Middle East wealth. He was a patriarch with long uh, flowing robes. I mean, those, those men did not go running around. It was not dignified. In Luke's account of this story, this man is called a ruler, possibly a member of the Sanhedrin, a person of power and influence. But Mark tells us he ran. He wanted badly to see Jesus. And when he got to Jesus, He didn't shake his hand and start talking. He falls 
at his feet and kneels before him. Uh, now, how often does that happen to you? Uh, you come home from a long day at the office, your spouse hears you come, uh, just running uh, through the doors, you know, to greet you and throws him or herself at your feet. Uh, I mean, they might throw something else at your feet, maybe like a child or something, but they usually don't throw themselves at your feet. Well, this rich young ruler is paying respect and honor to Jesus. He runs to him, kneels, falls at his feet, and addresses him, good teacher. Now, this is quite unusual. Uh, occasionally, people might describe uh, someone as good in that day, uh, but there's no record of a rabbi ever being addressed with that phrase, good teacher. Uh, so in very dramatic action and language, this man is expressing his spiritual urgency and commitment. And he would expect Jesus to be pretty flattered by this. The custom of that day would be for Jesus to respond in kind, you know, honored and diligent seeker or something like that. But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't address the man with any title, but he asks him a question that looks pretty abrupt to us. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. I think what Jesus is saying here is, I want you to pause for a moment and think about what you're saying because only God is good. And when you come running up to me, throwing yourself at my feet, kneeling before me and applying that title to me, you're claiming to commit yourself to me in a way that has a real high price tag. So before you get all worked up emotionally, I wanna ask if you counted the cost. This is kind of a reality check for him. Jesus goes on to give some uh, of the 10 commandments. Almost all of the commandments he gives involves things you should not do. Verse 19, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man stands there kind of checking them off in his head as Jesus recites them. You know, got that one, check, 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 check. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Notice he doesn't say good teacher this time. Uh, he's a quick learner. Teacher, you just described me. I mean, I haven't done any of those things. It's, it's like you know who I am. Seems a little arrogant, doesn't it? Have you told anyone you're perfect lately? <laughs> I mean, imagine telling Jesus you're perfect. I would expect nothing less than for Jesus to challenge him. Oh, really? Never deceived anyone, never spoken one untrue word, never given one false impression, uh, never cheated on a test, not even a Hebrew test when you were a little kid. Uh, I've got a pretty famous saying about committing adultery in your heart. You're telling me you've never done that one, but Jesus doesn't challenge him. Jesus says, I'll give you a free pass on the commandments. Uh, let's just let that slide for a moment. And this is a very moving moment. Uh, the writer of scripture says, Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. I think he loved this man's energy. I think he loved how this man approaches him with so much life. I think he loves the potential in this man. I think he loves the possibility of what this man might do for others. Jesus thinks of what might happen with all those resources and all that energy and all that potential if it gets poured out for God. Jesus looks at this highly energetic, somewhat deceived and arrogant man. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. 
just one thing you lack. I mean, you've got the whole list, but just one thing you lack. Now imagine the guy's excitement to hear what Jesus is gonna say next. One thing you lack, he said. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now why does Jesus give this command? A lot of people get hung up at this point in the story because it sounds so radical. Sometimes people think, if this is what Jesus is saying we really have to do to follow him, I mean, there's no way. And they kind of set this story aside. And maybe they think they can never uh, completely follow Christ. But I want you to notice that while Jesus gives this command to this rich young ruler, he doesn't give this command to everyone who follows him. Uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, uh, I mean, they get to keep their house. Uh, Zacchaeus retains a large portion of his wealth, and Jesus says salvation has come to him. So why does he lay such a heavy demand on this guy? I'll tell you what I think. I think this guy had control issues. He wanted everything in his life nailed down. I mean, think about this. He wanted to achieve financial security, and he had accomplished that. Uh, He had achieved financial security at a very young age. Uh, he wanted career success, and he accomplished that too. He wanted, uh, he, he wanted to be a member of the powerful elite. Uh, he had that. He had achieved the greatness in his career at a, a remarkably young age. Uh, he looked around and he realized he had everything nailed down for his life. But then one day it occurred to him there was still the life to come. And so he was on a mission to accomplish that too. He got information about requirements. Uh, He became an industry leader in the command keeping field. And beyond that, he went around consulting with rabbis. I mean, he certainly would have talked with his own rabbi. Now he's coming to Jesus, maybe for a second opinion. And he's really expecting Jesus to applaud him in his efforts. He knows he's spiritually above average. He looks around and other people are cheating and lying, not him. He's an upstanding believer who has gained the respect of others. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. What's the one thing? You don't have Jesus at the center of your life. You have wealth there. Jesus looks at this man and he loves him. And he says, gaining the respect of others is not what I'm asking for. Spiritually, well above average is not what I'm asking for. Just one thing. Put me at the center of your life. The way you cling to money is keeping you from that. And I believe this to be true. For every human being, there is one area in your life that you're most tempted to hold back from God. And if you let it, it will enslave you and it will keep you from freely giving yourself to God. I don't know what that is for you. Maybe it's pleasure. You just want to do what you want to do when you want to do it, whether it honors God or not. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe you're in a relationship that's dishonoring God and you know it. Uh, Maybe you're not willing to let go of that relationship. Maybe it's success. Uh, Maybe it's power. Maybe it's your reputation. Uh, You just want to be liked. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's comfort and security. I'll tell you this. Jesus has this ability to point out this area of life with complete clarity. And he's calling us to remove it and to put him in the center. He does that here because for this man, 
Uh, for many people, actually, it involves money. Jesus looks at this man and he loves him and he says, all the things that you think you possess, they are actually possessing you. They're choking out the generosity that I made you for. They're choking out your compassion. You were not made to be in control of your life. Trust me, go, sell it, give it all away, bless the poor with it, and then come be with me. Be done playing around with perceived success and spiritual greatness and give me the center position in your life. This is what we call uh, Christ-centered living at Blue Oaks. I mean, it's actually our mission as a church to lead everyone into Christ-centered living. Well, there's silence with this rich young ruler and it dawns on him that this will not be what he thought it was gonna be. One more polite conversation about how well he's doing spiritually. And he wonders, could I really do this? Could I really trust Jesus this far? He looks at Jesus' followers and there's something about them. You know, they have a kind of freedom and intimacy and aliveness and joy that he hungers for. But they're poor. They have nothing. They're unknown. They're not important. No one's going to ask them to be a part of the Sanhedrin. For this rich young ruler to join the disciples would be like vocational, social, and financial suicide. I mean, it's the most amazing thing. He realizes he's scared. It's so funny, actually. This man who has never backed down from a challenge in his life, who has seized life by the throat and overcome every obstacle, is afraid to do what Jesus asks him to do. Look at verse 22. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. He doesn't say a word. He just turns away from Jesus and he walks away. And now he's safe. Now he's back in control. But something inside of him is sad. And the reality is, it will be sad until the day he dies. Why is he sad? He still has all of his money. He still has all of his power. He still has this rich, full, impressive, admired, respected life in front of him. He's sad because nothing is sadder than a spiritually sensitive heart that says no to God. Nothing is sadder. Maybe you know that sadness. Maybe you're experiencing it right now. Well, this man walks into a life of wealth, powerful, ah. Well, this man walks into a life of wealthy, powerful, respectable sadness. And he's never heard from again. I hear that story and have to agree with Matt. It's truly one of the saddest in the Gospels. This wealthy, successful young man just turns from Jesus and walks away. You may not have walked away from God, but have you ever said to him, I'll give you this, but I'm keeping that. You'll surrender pieces of who you are, but not the whole. There's a song I remember as a kid growing up in church. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. As the years went on, the problem was the longer the list became of what I freely withheld. We all have areas of our lives that are harder to surrender to God than others. Jesus once said that to follow him, you must deny yourself. In essence, give up control and give him control. It's saying, I surrender all to Jesus, 
all to him I freely give. Surrender is one of the catalytic beliefs in a Christ-centered life. The Apostle Paul no doubt had this in mind when he wrote, I urge you in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This, he says, is your true and proper worship. The only way to live out God's plan and purpose for your life is through total surrender to him. It's saying, Lord, this is no longer my life, but yours. No longer my will, but yours. No longer my plan, but yours. A living sacrifice says, I'm willing to risk everything important in my life for Jesus. Listen, don't trade what will last forever for the temporary treasures of this life. Surrender. Well, let's rejoin Matt as Jesus now turns his attention to those who witnessed the encounter with the rich young man. All right, now let's look at the rest of the story. The rich young ruler walks away sad because he had great wealth. Then this is what the scripture says. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The implication here is his his disciples were watching. They most likely had been thinking this guy could potentially be a very significant donor for their mission. And Jesus had not done real well in the donor development department right here. He says to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. That's pretty hard to swallow for his followers. And it's been hard for people to swallow ever since. And people have to come up with lots of ways to kind of soften what Jesus says here. Uh, There's an old story I heard growing up in the church that what's behind this story is that there is actually a gate in Jerusalem called the Needle Gate. Uh, It was a very narrow gate, and a camel could only get through it if it got down on its knees. And in this case, the point of the story would be you could get in if you're rich, if you were humble as well. Well, there is no such gate in Jerusalem. That story, if you've ever heard it, was just made up, uh, probably by some rich guy somewhere along the line. Jesus says, It's like trying to get an actual, literal camel through the actual, literal, I have a needle. How hard would that be? I mean, that would be extremely hard. That would take a very, 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 very strong person. And that would be one sore camel after it passed through the eye of the needle. Jesus didn't say it's hard. He said it's impossible. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Because their theology said that riches were the blessings of God. So the rich are those who are blessed and the richest were the most blessed. If they're not getting in, who's getting in? And at this point, it's quite interesting. In verse 27, Jesus doesn't say the poor. Uh, The point he's making is not the poor have a leg up on salvation. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. He says, humanly speaking, it's impossible. Just look at the way sin works. When does a greedy person ever say to himself, oh, I've got enough now. 
My whole life, I've wanted more, 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 and now I have enough. Now I can be generous. False gods are never satisfied. False gods are insatiable. It's impossible, Jesus says. But he didn't intend this to be a, a discouraging teaching. One of the great statements in scripture comes next. All things are possible with God. If you believe your well-being is only in your hands, you will hoard and cling to your stuff and strive for control your whole life long. You'll become a generous person only if you truly believe that God is watching out for you, that God himself is caring for you. And the best reason I can give you to believe in a God like that is that Jesus believed in a God like that. That's the hand of the Father in which he lived. And he never, ever got tired of teaching about this. One of his favorite illustrations involved birds. He says in Matthew 6, 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Or Luke 12, 6, Jesus says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Jesus says, look at the birds. I mean, their whole existence, every time they eat, it's not the random act of an unfeeling, unthinking, unblinking mechanical universe. It's a testimony that our God is a caring, generous, faithful, giving God because giving is what God does and he'll take care of you. And not just that, he made you to be like him. For the law of giving is woven into this universe like the law of gravity. And if you try to live by getting instead of giving, it will break you. Like defying the law of gravity will break your body. There's another lesson from the birds. I love these words. Uh, this is written by Eugene Peterson. He writes about one time when he was watching adult swallows trying to get their little swallow uh, chicks to fly. One adult swallow got alongside the chicks and started shoving them out toward the end of the branch, pushing, pushing, pushing. The end one fell off. Somewhere between the branch and the water, four feet below, the wings started working and the fledgling was off on his own. Then the second one. But the third one was not to be bullied. At the last possible moment, his grip on the branch loosened just enough so that he swung downward, then tightened again with bulldog tenaciousness. The parent was without sentiment. He pecked at the desperately clinging talon until it was more painful for the poor chick to hang on than risk the insecurities of flying. Uh, maybe you have older children and you're getting ideas right now. Uh, the grip was released and the inexperienced wings began pumping. The mature swallow knew what the chick did not, that it would fly. That there was no danger in making it do what it was perfectly designed to do. You know, birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely. Uh, they can walk, they can cling, but flying is the characteristic action they were created to do. And not until they fly are they living at their best, gracefully and beautifully. Giving is what we do best. It's the air into which we were born. It's the action that was designed into us 
before our birth. Giving is the way the world is. God gives himself. He gives away everything he has. And he makes no exceptions for you and me. We are given away to our families and to our neighbors and to our friends and to our enemies and to other nations. Our, our life is not for us. Our life is for others. I mean, that's the way creation works. And some of us try desperately to hold on to our lives, to, to live for ourselves. And we look so pathetic hanging on to the dead branch of a bank account for dear life, afraid to risk and fly by giving it away. We don't think we can live generously because we've never tried. But the sooner we start, the better. You know, we're going to have to give up our lives at some point. And the reality is, the longer we wait, the less time we have to actually soar on wings like eagles. Giving is what we do best. It's what you were made to do. It's what frightened this rich young ruler. And when he came face to face with Jesus, money won the day. Money. I want to make sure for you and me, money doesn't win. I want to make sure that money does not win my day. That money does not win your day. That money does not win this church's day. I want to mention two ways God still comes to little birds clutching onto a branch and says, come on, trust me, let go, fly. And I want to ask you today to make a decision because people do not drift into generosity. People do not drift into Christ-centered living. I want to talk about what God uses to call us into this kind of life of generosity. And one is it's simply the discipline of tithing. You honor God by giving the first 10% to him. Now, the number 10, when you study its meaning, is a very interesting number biblically. Uh, do you know what the number 10 means in the Bible? It means test. For instance, how many plagues were there in Egypt? 10. Pharaoh was tested 10 times. How many commandments are there? 10. So how many ways is our obedience tested? 10. How many times did God test Israel while they were wandering through the wilderness? How many times did God test Jacob when he was uh, working for Laban? How many times was Daniel tested in Daniel 1? In every case, the answer is 10. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 25 about 10 bridesmaids that were waiting for the bridegroom and they had their preparedness tested. Uh, Revelation 2.10 mentions 10 days of testing. And throughout the Bible, the number 10 is associated with testing. And honoring God first represents a heart test for any of the, uh, his followers. Now, this principle is taught in many places in the Bible, but maybe the most famous passage is the one from Malachi 3, where God himself says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. God says, as a matter of discipline, you adopt a framework that considers the whole tithe 
belongs to God to such an extent that withholding it would be like an act of stealing. Now, of course, the truth is everything belongs to God, everything. But to make this real concrete, God says a starting point is to say that a tithe, 10% of all that comes to me, I'll literally treat as if God had legal claim on it. This is the discipline of tithing. God says, test me in this. God says, if you will ever do this, if you will ever let go of the branch, you'll discover I really will take care of you. I really will. Now, it may be that you're feeling a little like the rich young ruler did on this one. Uh, yeah, you know, I got that one. Check. I got that one. I know about tithing. I'm on board. So let me just pause and ask you to reflect for a moment on this. Are you really tithing? Uh, we're in the month of May. We're about five months into 2021. I mean, think about the financial resources that have come in your life so far this year. Are you up to date? Are you current with God? Have you brought the full tithe of all that God has blessed you with? You know, I mentioned this because the truth is that a lot of the times, even for well-intentioned Christians, there are subtle or not so subtle factors that can make me feel like I'm on board with this one when in fact I'm really not. Sometimes people have resources come in, maybe in the form of a gift or outside income, and because it's not their regular paycheck, they're withholding the tithe from God. Sometimes people say, yeah, I'm a committed tither. But the reality is when cash flow gets tight, it's the tithe that suffers. The tithe is put on the back burner. I've actually heard people say something like this. You know, the Bible says that God wants a cheerful giver. And I need to not give right now because if I were to give, it would not be cheerful. <laughs> Let me give you a little advice here. If you're a follower of Christ and you find right now you cannot give with authentic cheerfulness and joy, fake it. <laughs> because if I wait to give until I feel like it, I may, may wait as long as the rich young ruler. I may never leave the branch at all. And a lot of times joy comes after obedience, not before. Don't rob God, the writer of scripture says. Bring your full tithe. Let go of the branch. Trust me, God says. So honest now. I mean, this is just between you and God. Are you current with God? And if you're not, will you make a decision right now to get current? Deuteronomy 14.23 teaches the reason why we should tithe. The writer of scripture says, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. Okay, so tithing is one way God teaches us to give. The other way God comes along and kind of pecks on his children uh, to let go of the branch involves what might be called promptings that are given by the Holy Spirit. Uh, they're promptings to actually give. When a human being is born, uh, just after he learns the word no, uh, he'll learn another word that will become his favorite word in the whole world. All of my children loved this word when they were little. Um, it's a little word, one syllable, four letters, you want to guess what it is? Mine. My toys, my blanket, my food, my room, my BMW, mine. And for some people, that word remains the dominant word in their life until the day they die. Mine. Now, when a human being is born again, the Holy Spirit will whisper a different word in their heart. It's a little word, one syllable, four letters. It's the word give. 
That's the nature of God. This happened to such an extent in the early church that after Pentecost, after the coming of the Holy Spirit, the writer of scripture says in Acts 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Think about that in that culture, in that day, in that kind of poverty. I mean, there actually has been in human history, a community of men and women who ceased to be dominated by the word mine. From time to time, the writer of scripture says, those who owned houses or land sold them and, bought and brought the money uh, and, uh, from those sales and laid it at the apostles' feet. I mean, this is the fulfillment of what Jesus says in this text, Mark 10.30. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. That actually happened in the church because the resources of everyone in that community became available to all. That's God's dream for his community, that it be a community marked by generosity. From time to time, the spirit would whisper, give to someone, and they would just give it. Now, let me ask you a question. Has the spirit stopped whispering, give? Or do we not always listen? Or do we say, you know, the truth is, uh, I just don't wanna spend the money. I just don't wanna spend the time. I'll make this personal. Uh, I was walking on the sidewalk a couple weeks ago and noticed what looked like a homeless person uh, so out of the corner of my eye, without even consciously thinking about it, it just occurred to me that this person is going to want something. And so I just stayed away. I just avoided eye contact. I made sure I wouldn't get a request that might make me feel guilty. Now, understand, I'm not saying anytime anybody asks you for anything, you have to give it to them. But my heart was not in tune to hear the Spirit saying, give. That's what you were made to do. That's what you do best. It's the heart of God. Are you listening to the spirit whisper, give? And are you obeying it? Maybe it'll involve giving to someone you know who is in need. Maybe it'll involve giving to a ministry God wants you to be involved in to make a significant impact for his kingdom. Here's what I do. Sometimes I let the branch go for a moment. I let some of my stuff go for a moment, and then I wanna grab on again. You know, when Jesus called people as a general rule, it costs something. We lose this in our day, but for all of the disciples, it costs something. It costs Zacchaeus something. It costs Paul something. It costs something when Jesus calls you. I have a friend, he's a businessman, you know, he's in his 60s. He said to me, you know, I always felt when I was young, that I ought to go into ministry. And I asked him, well, why didn't you? Well, when it came right down to it, uh, it was just money. Uh, he was already in business and he was doing quite well. And so uh, he didn't follow what he sensed was God's calling in his life. I don't know how else to say this. It's just money. It's just money and people get all twisted up in knots over it and they stay awake at night over it and they worry and they get anxious and they scheme and they trade away their integrity about how to get more of it. And they end up throwing away their lives running after more of it. It's just money. 
It's never a reason not to follow Christ. It's never a reason not to do the thing that God needs you to do. It's just money. I don't know what the past decisions you've made are. I don't know how well you've done with those or how foolishly you've done with those, but I know Jesus is still calling people to put him in the center of their lives. So will you decide now? I will obey. When the Holy Spirit whispers, give, I will ruthlessly obey. You know, I wonder sometimes what this man in Mark 10 experienced when he reached the end of his life. You know, when he was a rich old ruler and he looked back at a long life of respectability. He never murdered, he never stole, he never committed adultery, he knew the scriptures, he walked the straight and narrow, and people would point to him when he was, you know, around in the community. You know, parents would point to this man and say to their children, this man is an example of what you might become. Uh, this man got everything right, they would say. This, this is a blessed life by God. This is what it looks like. No one else, of course, remembered that he had once had an experience with a young rabbi a long time ago, uh, but he remembered. And then when he was a rich old man, I wonder if he ever looked back on that day when he was young and strong and so full of promise, when a penniless carpenter gave him this strange, wild invitation to leave it all, to abandon everything and come follow him. And I wonder if he ever asked himself what might have happened if he would have chose to go the other way. And I wonder if he ever asked himself why he didn't say yes. It's just money. Our world is insane about it, but it's just money. And even in this world that screams, mine, the Spirit of God continues to whisper, give. All right, let me pray for you, and then Michaela and the team will lead us in a closing song. God, I pray for each person who's listening right now that you would continue to move in their hearts and their minds in this area where they're holding on to something and they need to let go. They need to trust you and they need to learn to fly. Maybe it's money, maybe it's something else, God, but I pray that you would be at work in them, give them the courage, give them the faith to trust you in that area of their life. Uh, for some people, it's giving and it's tithing and it's putting you first in their finances. So I pray that they would have the boldness to step forward and to, uh, to, to do that. For some, it's just following the whispers of your Holy Spirit to, to give in, in other ways that you're calling us to. I just pray that you would lead us in this area. Help us to be generous individually and as a church. Because I know, because you've told us, that that will lead us to life in all its fullness, the way you designed us to be. So help us to follow you in this way. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. And we hope to see you on Sunday soon.